Hey folks, just a quick note that Jim and I will be in Walt Disney World November 10th through the 13th hosting a live event. We'll be walking through the parks. We'll be meeting at night for drinks. There may also be other special meals. Who knows, Jim might also do some belly dancing over in Morocco. Take a look at all of the events over at our travel partners website, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. That's storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast. It's me, Len Testa. With me, as always, my trusty sidekick. Actually, I think I'm the sidekick in this relationship, but let's let's go with this. Uh, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I'm still kind of reflecting on the belly dancing in Morocco. Technically, <laughs> given my current size, it would be Morocco and Japan. <laughs> kind of a sumo thing going on here, Len. You know, I'm not proud. Call it what you will, Jim. Call it what there you will. All right. Today, we're continuing our chronological Disneyland story. We had uh, left off on the last episode talking about the long path that Imagineer Kim Murphy took from SeaWorld through the Living Seas to the Disney Seas concept over in Long Beach. We talked about what the concept for that. There was this big sort of shiny sphere ocean type thing for Los Angeles that didn't get built. So what happened next? When you talk about Port Disney, Disney Seas, you have to acknowledge the challenges that Disney faced with the whole Queen Mary Spruce Goose thing. In 1988, when they acquired the Disneyland Hotel, this was the equivalent of buying the home that you've always wanted and several sheds in the back. And they got cool stuff in them, but that's really what you weren't after. Just this past weekend, NPR did this amazing story about what's going on in retail. I saw, yeah. Retail is falling through the floor. Yeah, the premise of the article is that all of these suburban malls that were built over the last 50 years are now collapsing. Mm -hmm. And that it's a slippery slope once you start losing a giant retailer like a Sears or JCPenney's, once the big names shutter, it's harder for the smaller places to stay in business. And, and even if big box retailers stay, the profit margins are so small on malls that a few of the the smaller, the mid-sized places, even if a few of them closing, basically turn the entire site from profitable to unprofitable overnight. If you jump back to late 1988, early 1999 of the Florida resort, what they're mm -hmm. seeing is the amount of money that's going off property to people who, as they're vacationing, want to shop. And they're going to the outlet yeah. malls that are on iDrive or that sort of thing. Hugely, hugely popular. Everybody that I've talked to since I've been in celebration, everybody that's come in from out of state, all of them, literally all of them have gone to the outlets. Back in late 88, early 1989, the Walt Disney Company is seriously considering a building a 1.5 million square foot mega mall on all that land it owned in Osceola County. So, Len, where you're standing right now was where the Orange Julius was going to be built. Oh, I would, I would kill for an Orange Julius right now, Jim. That's a good drink. It's what orange juice should be. Well, there we go. <laughs> When you look over the material that talks about this mega mall project, it's filled mm. with all of these Bloomingdale's, the Saks Fifth Avenues, the Neiman Marcuses. Mm. But even then, Eisner didn't feel like that was a big enough draw. They wanted something that would really make this mall stand out. So he reaches out to Harrods. 
parents wanted into the American market, given how famous they are in London and very elite reputation, they oh, yeah. weren't willing to go just anywhere. And so Disney actually offered them a twofer. We just recently did our unbuilt Disney show about those nightclubs that were going to mm -hmm. be built in, in Burbank as part of the Disney MGM Backlot Project. Well, that right. was obviously supposed to get you there at night. During the day, they wanted destination retail. So the offer they were making to Harrods was, you come in with us on these two projects. We'll put you in our mega mall in Florida, and we'll put you in the studio backlot project, and we will put the full force of the Disney company behind you. The Imagineers will design an amazing retail space, and you will come into the American market in a big, big way. Wow. Because of what was going on outside of these two projects, one of the things that was powering the development of this mega mall in Osceola County was that at the same time, Disney was, was meeting with two Japanese consortiums to build a maglev train that would take people straight from the, the Orlando airport to Epcot. And half of the cars were literally going to be a transportation system that you got off your plane, you went to the Maglev train, it took you to a depot at Epcot, and you could then go to whatever Disneyland or Disney World Resort you're staying at. But the other wow. half of this thing was okay. a ride. People in Epcot would get into this sealed car and it would zoom to the airport at 300 miles an hour. And then you'd sit there for a moment while the train loaded and then zoom back to Epcot. But the thing was that the other attractions in Central Florida that were going to have to provide the right of way and the tax breaks for Disney to do <laughs> yeah, this. I, I, yeah, I can't imagine uh, going to Hilton and saying, hey, we'd like to put a pylon for a uh, giant monorail that goes directly to the airport on your property. Yeah, that's that's not going to happen. Well, all they asked for, they wanted a stop by the Orange County Convention Center on iDrive with the notion that if people got off there, they then might go to SeaWorld, they then might go to Universal Studios, or for that matter, they might visit iDrive. And Disney is like, oh, no, 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 we, we don't share. Yeah. And the project dies there, and because that project dies, well, you don't need a monorail spur that would then take people from the Maglev train station over to your mega mall. I just came across this amazing newsletter. It's a newsletter for people who are building Epcot. This is the August 1982 issue. They're in the process, obviously, of wrapping up the construction. And one of the things that they used to do in the months before Epcot opened is that you could actually take the monorail over from the Magic Kingdom and you could get off at what is now the Epcot station and look out at the construction site and see what had been built. Really? As a, as a tourist, you could? This was literally an attraction. There was a little gift shop there. That was the very first place you could buy Epcot merchandise was this little kiosk that was on the monorail thing. But it's August. It opens in three months. So they're in the process of shutting it down. And they're thanking the folks who actually built the monorail extension, the Morris Knudsen Company, who work with American Bridge. They're talking about how they erected 327 piers and 407 beams to make this all possible to create the 2.4 mile route that gets people back and forth to the new park. They mention that as this is going on, Disney is in the process of buying the on-site construction. You know, they literally had a yard 
there on property where they were casting the monorail beams because uh, as they found out from the, the, what they'd done when they first did the monorail on property where the beams were cast in Seattle and then taken by train down to Florida prohibitively expensive and hundreds of transportation challenges. So this time they're going to do them on property and make them lighter. And Morrison Kinison has been operating this as a contractor and Disney is going to buy them outright. The company. Rather the yard that they built on Disney property because now they're getting ready to build the extension of the monorail system that will take people over to the shopping village. Disney is going to do this all by itself, and thank you for setting this up. And given the huge success that Epcot is going to be, we're going to get on that project right away. (laughs) All right. Never happens. This is the way it is with Disney. There are all sorts of projects like this that get announced, and the double back to the thing in Burbank with the, the MGM lot. The financials began not to line up, and so they back away from that. Now, think about this. Disney has cut this deal with Harrods. Okay. And you get in bed with us, and we're going to bring you to the American market in a big, big way. And mm-hmm. and suddenly, your Mega Mall has fallen off the table, and you're not doing the Burbank thing. And here's Harrods. What's like, you promised you introduced us to the U.S. market. So what do they do? December of 1989, they announced, hey, we're going to put Harrods on the Queen Mary. Really? Harrods on the Queen? That sounds like a terrible idea. Oh, it gets worse, Len. You, know, you have to understand the store in London is 675,000 square feet. And, oh, you know, I've it's, been. It's a, uh, it's a destination. Have you been? No, no. I, I've always heard it's amazing. It's, uh, it's really, really high-end retail. Bottom floor, the, the food halls, they are legendary. Um, excellent service everywhere. I think the top floors, it's like one-stop shopping if you wanted to decorate your palace. Mm-hmm. So the higher up you go, I guess, the more high-end the stuff goes. But you can walk around. Everyone's super friendly. The thing I remember about it, other than the food halls, is I think at the time it was a pound or two to use the toilets. <laughs> this is how they keep the riffraff out. And also they have a fantastic tea service. Actually, one of my, my favorite tea services in the entire world in Harrods. I've, I've gone a couple of times. Consistently good. It's, is it as good as, you know, at the plaza or something like that? I, I don't know. But I, I really like the service there. Picture this, Lynn. You go from 675,000 square feet down to 900 square feet. This is what they built on the Queen Mary. That they basically was a shop that sold 125 items that had the Herod's name on it. But the, the size of a bathroom. But okay, <laughs> there we go. All right, there we go. But we're gonna get started. We're you know we got to do something on the Queen Mary, and this will make it special. And, and at the same time. As they're announcing this, they're also announcing a year-long promotion that they'll be doing at the Queen Mary to, you know, to sort of show this is what how Disney's going to handle the Queen Mary. We're going to do the Voyage of 1939. And the gimmick of this year-long presentation is that 39 is really the last year before war consumed Europe. And so this last sort of innocent moment before the world changed, that's what they're going to celebrate during this sort of inaugural Disney takes over the Queen Mary into the Spruce Goose. But the problem is, of course, Disney is taking over this attraction that's operated in Long Beach for 20 plus years at this point. 
So you have all these employees who, who've worked there forever who suddenly find themselves up against Disney's grooming standards. Oh, is that, is that a problem? You've got people who've been playing ship's captains and that sort of thing from the 1930s. So they've got the full beards. They've got the big mustaches. And here's the Disney grooming standards where Disney cast members. And remember that now that Disney's assumed operations of the Spruce Goose and the Queen Mary because they acquired the mm-hmm. Disneyland Hotel, they want the folks who work at the, this Long Beach attraction to be like the other then 30,000 employees who worked at Disneyland and Walt Disney world the timing could not have been worse this story they start as they're sort of trying to get this grooming standard in place for their thing that kicks off on january of 1990 so of course as the christmas holidays are arriving disney is laying off employees or finding them or suspending them for having facial hair as Christmas arrives, all right? And, <laughs> all right, Ebenezer. <laughs> well, what's worse is evidently there's this great political cartoon of the Long Beach Telegram where it's basically Santa trying to go down the smokestack at the Queen Mary and Mickey's like, okay, fat boy, shave. <laughs> Jesus. But here's the problem. At the very moment that Disney needs Long Beach the people of Long Beach to be on board. Because, of course, remember, poor Kim Murphy has to take this concept for Port Disney and the Disney Seas theme park to the California Coastal Commission. So you need the locals on board for right. this. Yeah, at and least quiet, not riled up. Okay. The very first time that Disney tried to do something that was crazy immersive was, in fact, Voyage of 39 on the Queen Mary. I mean, you know, picture this, Len. You come up the gangplank at the Queen Mary. As you come on board, the ship steward is there to hand you a copy of the front page of a newspaper for that exact same day in 1939. So you are dropped immediately into the world of January 5th, 1939. Mm-hmm. You're then walking around the ship and all of the audio are news broadcasts or entertainment programs of that day. If you go over to the Spruce Goose, surrounding the Spruce Goose are 50 cars from 1939. I got there the summer of 1990 to sample this stuff myself, and I had this wonderful interaction with a Disney cast member who was dressed as W.C. Fields, and he was <laughs> literally wandering the deck with a suitcase, and he sort of came up to me and enters you on an adult beverage, sir, and he just really? opened his suitcase and made me a cocktail. And what was wonderful is as he's working there, who comes around the corner, but another cast member dressed as Mae West, it was like the adventurer's club only at sea it was wonderful they put two million dollars into upcape you know to bringing the ship back up to standard in fact i've got an invoice here len they spent forty thousand dollars just on polishing the brass rails in the ship wow and this got crazy expensive really 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 fast i mean the problem with the Queen Mary is construction started in 1930. So when you're trying to make repairs, just the brass screws that were used on the fluorescent fixtures throughout the ship, they had the special order of those. There's a hotel on board. They've taken 365 of the staterooms and turned them into hotel rooms. And it's just to try to 
to upgrade and improve this. It's the equivalent of working on the Titanic. Wow. And then to do something that Disney thought was as innocuous as, well, we're looking at photographs of the period, and it looks like the funnels of the ship are painted red, so let's do that. And suddenly the Long Beach Historical Society comes at them, and it's like, no, 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 no. They are orange. You have changed the colors, and how dare you do this? And, you know, for Disney... Here they are trying to do something, and this is their, their inaugural effort, and they put all this effort into creating this immersive experience and to find themselves at odds with the people of Long Beach repeatedly over that first five to six months they're operating left a really bad taste in their mouth. And every so often you'll hear Disney fans who'll get upset about changes at the, the Disney theme parks and that sort of thing. They'll talk about, well, how... How can we stop them from doing this? Can we do something like, say, get Sleeping Beauty Castle declared a historical monument? And so Disney has to leave that away. And Disney always, always resists this. Yeah. Because, you know, don't get me wrong. It would be a wonderful promotional thing or wonderful acknowledgement of Disney's place in the pop culture. But the very fact that they'd then be handcuffed, that they couldn't. Yeah, that's the problem. They would, they would fight that, yeah. Yeah, so that was the thing with the Queen Mary. Just the, the reality of... Oh my God, this thing is ridiculously expensive to maintain. We have a very vocal Long Beach community that is not, in fact, falling in behind us to support what we're trying to do here. And in fact, they keep challenging us. And meanwhile, here's Kim Murphy getting ready to go to the California Coastal Commission with, with this sort of hanging over his head. The fact that I can't necessarily count on the folks in the community that's right across the bay from the Queen Mary and the Spruce Goose to be on board with what we're trying to do here. And and especially at a time when Anaheim was so desperate to make sure that Disney stayed in Anaheim, that you know whatever money they were thinking of spending, expanding in Southern California, stayed where Walt started. Mm-hmm. We're getting this sort of this clash between the two cities, coupled with the fact that here's poor Kim Murphy sort of looking over shoulder and it's like, are these people going to be in my corner when we go forward? And that, I think, is where we'll pick up with the next installment of the chronological Disney. Yeah, the funny thing about this is is how much drama is going on behind the scenes for a couple of properties that ultimately Disney decided not to do anything with. It seems to me that have they applied this amount of effort and creativity to almost any other thing, we would have had something to show for it. <laughs> well, you know, there are so many amazing Disney projects. And when you think about, for example, Mineral King, yeah, you had Disney trying to create the world's first eco-friendly ski resort. Mm-hmm. Everything from deliberately keeping cars out of the valley. In fact, the only way to get to the resort was to hop a steam train that would take you up into the mountains. And but that gets shut down by the Sierra Club. The year that Walt died, they declared him the conservationist of the year. Wow. But only a Walt Disney had the force of personality and, and could get that done. And in fact, that's kind of the irony of the Michael Eisner years, where Michael really lost sight of the ball here because he saw Long Beach as the opportunity to create three and four giant hotels and a cruise ship terminal and, oh yeah, a theme park. To give you some idea of how wrong-headed Disney's take on the Port Disney, Disney Seas project was, I've got concept art, I'll dig it out for your lens, but they literally show how Disney, in order 
to put the Queen Mary in a spot that as you came up to the property was in a better beauty spot. They were basically going to move the Queen Mary 900 feet. So it would be more photogenic. But at this point, they had decided they were going to shut down the hotel and they weren't going to have any attraction on board it. It was going to be an icon, but an empty shell. They were staring down the bills of how much it cost to buy the little brass screws that had to come all the way over from London and all that. But we'll get into that and why Disney opted to stick with Anaheim and in order to make Anaheim come on board, had to do Westcott 2. And we'll talk about the plans for that in our next Chronological Disney. Looking forward to it. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher and flag down a passing skywriting airplane and rate the show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.